Well, good evening, everybody. You've probably heard Steve's mom passed away Tuesday morning at 3.30. She had been ill for a while, and poor Steve has been going up there and then trying to do things back here. He was scheduled to go to Kentucky uh, to our old seminary, Asbury, that week, but he diverted and went to see his mom, so that's, that's good. They're having a viewing in Dallas. I think it's a family affair, and then a later date, I don't know when, they're going to take her to Tulia, which is sort of the ancestral home, and bury her there. So please remember him. This was his last parent, and it's, it's hard, especially your mom. She, uh, she had suffered kind of at the end. So many of you knew her. I mean, she lived here for a while. So let's, let's begin and pray for him. Father God, we remember Steve, our brother tonight, who experiences the pain of death, the pain of separation. We rejoice that his mom has been freed from her struggle here on earth. She has been born on the other side. And it is, we know, good for her. So much of her life, Lord, we know she struggled with hearing and had to use hearing aids and implants. But today, she hears you clearly. And we're thankful for that. The God that we serve does make it right. Help Steve's entire family to soak in the memories, the joy that her life brought. Help all of us to appreciate what moms really are if we're able to still see them or if they're memories for us. May we know that that first love that came from them came from you, and we were blessed because of it. Help us tonight as we study your word to feel that same kind of love, that same kind of arm reaching out to us to help us to understand. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Well, let's jump into it. Poor Jesus was having a bad time with his hometown last week. Remember Nazareth, where he grew up? We don't know the full extent of it, but it, it was rocky at points, and certainly right at the end it was for him. He gave a, uh, we'll say, interpretation, a presentation. A sermon is not quite probably the right word yet, um, but it uh, didn't go well in the synagogue of Nazareth. People were okay when he seemed to announce that he was the Messiah. That didn't bother them too much. But what they got really worked up about, remember, is when he said, uh, I'm not going to perform miracles for you. I'm not going to be your circus sideshow. In fact, I've got other places, other people to speak to. And they tried to throw him off the cliffs of Nazareth. And so he, in the Gospels, will sort of pack up shop and he'll move to Capernaum, which we're going to talk about a great deal tonight. It is Jesus' adopted hometown. It's another one of these little Jewish fishing villages on the north shore <clears throat> excuse me, of the Sea of Galilee. It is the largest of them. Um, it's a... Well, its its original Hebrew name was Kafar Nahum. We've talked about that. Kafar is simply a village, so it probably had grown to about a thousand people at this point, which is large for the North Shore uh, for Jewish settlements. But it's nowhere near Tiberias, which is about ten thousand, 
that's just around the coast. It has a Roman garrison in the town. That's a bit unusual. Um, The Romans are trying to be everywhere, but they usually don't have garrisons all over the place. So there would be an unusual amount of Roman activity in Capernaum. And we'll see that happen uh, with Jesus. So it's a little bit dangerous in Capernaum. But it is another one of these fishing boom towns. Remember, Jewish mamas don't want their babies to grow up and be fishermen. <laughs> this, is not, this is not a good job for little Jewish boys. They're supposed to be shepherds or rabbis or all sorts of things. No Jew has ever made a great living fishing, they would say. But all that changed when the Romans came. Uh, the Roman occupation created new industry. And as we've done it here, I won't do to you again. But R- Romans love their garum. Remember the fermented fish oil. And so everywhere they went, they had to have their ketchup, so to speak. And so this whole industry begins of catching fish, grinding them up, fermenting it, and selling it to the Romans. So the villages on the north side really seem to be the catchers. And Magdala, where Mary of Magdalene comes from, is the, the processing plant uh, where they grind them up and, and do to them. So um, I'm sure it smelled wonderful in uh, all these little towns. But Jews are moving into new industries, uh, trying to survive Roman occupation. And Jesus will draw a lot of disciples, obviously, from this group of people. They are raised as good Jews. They go to synagogue. They know the scriptures. And we'll call them soft collaborators. Um, They're not working for the Romans, but they're making money off of them. So before we get into Capernaum, I'm going to rely on David Hyman, who is actually going to work with us in March to take our first trip to Israel. So David is going to take us through Capernaum. It's interesting, as he shows us all this stuff, you're going to see Capernaum now claims Jesus. (laughs) You know, they're the town of Jesus. Um, it would have been nice if you were the town of Jesus in Scripture, but hey, uh, better late than never. And it's also one of these tourist traps that sort of get under my skin of they've discovered Peter's house. So let me try to explain this. Christians for a long time have tried really to know uh, where all these things happened. And we haven't had always the most uh, understanding or familiarity with the geography or the landscape, but we really want to. And so one of the reasons I think we go to Israel is so we can understand. But for the longest time, uh, Christians wanted to know, okay, where, where did all this happen? What city is this? What happened in this city? And one thing really to understand about our Christian history that I'm not proud of, but is the whole movement of relics. Now today we wouldn't think twice about doing anything like this. We wouldn't do it. But for most of our history, to have a little piece of the story... So I'm talking about wood from the cross of Christ or the cup from the Last Supper or the spear of destiny that pierced Christ's sides or the bones of Peter or the bones of Jesus, the Turin of Sh- the Shroud of Turin. All of these things were desperately sought by Christians from Europe. 
And what we generally miss is that this was a massive economic investment. If you had something that would draw people to your church, to your cathedral, because you had, let's say, the bones of Mark, then you could charge them um, a fee to see it, and you'd had a regular money-making industry. Please understand, I mean, this was millions and millions of dollars in Europe when millions and millions of dollars was an astronomical figure, okay? To let you know how bad it was, Venice stole the body of Mark from a cathedral in Egypt. So Mark's bones could be moved to Venice, and he would become the patron saint of Venice, Now, Mark had never visited Venice his whole life. He could have even told you where it was on a map. He could care less. But suddenly now, he is giving special blessings through his bones in Venice. So poor Mark, his head is still in Cairo, but his body is supposedly still in Venice. So it's just how insane all of this really gets. So in the midst of all this, you have a Byzantine emperor who is looking to establish churches as Christians still control the, uh, the East. He sends his mother, uh, Queen Helena, to find these locations. And gosh darn it, if she doesn't find everything. She finds the actual cross that Jesus was crucified. Huh, I knew we had that in a closet somewhere. I, it just the strangest thing. I mean, she finds everything everywhere. So one of the things that she finds is Peter's house in Capernaum. Now, they build a church on it, and then the tradition goes, well, the Byzantines must have known something that we don't. And so uh, this is probably, we say, the place where Peter lived. The archaeologist, the historian in me hates that. Because we can't really know based on the Byzantines deciding, "Eh, it's this house, okay? She was throwing around a lot of money, and people are like, yeah, sure, Peter, he loved my house. You know, the house is from the wrong century. Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, look, his his handwriting, Peter, is on the wall. It's it's garbage, okay? Um, I don't do this to dispel anybody's faith. I mean, Capernaum and the ruins of it, it's not a big site, so it's somewhere in that town. Um, you're, you're not going to be off by much, but it's probably not where they have a church built. Okay, So when we go to Capernaum, we'll see uh, the city itself, which I think is more important. You'll see the synagogue where Jesus will do a lot of things tonight. And then you'll see a church built on ruins of a house that the, the Franciscans say is the house of Peter. So anyway, I'll let David take us through Capernaum and give us a little feel of it. Jesus. So let's enter and understand why. So the town of Jesus. The town was active from the first century until the 10th century for about a thousand years, but then was abandoned and lost until the Franciscans purchased the ruins back in 1894 and have been excavating and restoring the site ever since. Let's visit the two most important highlights of Capernaum, the synagogue and the house of St. Peter. So after Jesus was rejected from Nazareth, he relocates 
and he chooses to move down here by the shore of the Sea of Galilee to this village of Kfar Nahum, Capernaum. Kfar Nahum in Hebrew, it means the village of Nahum. Why would he come down here? Uh, there are probably many reasons. One of them is obvious, he has friends here. Uh, Peter and his brother Andrew are residents of this area, and the other couple of brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are also residents of this area. They're all fishermen by the lake. So by coming here, he already has a group of friends that he can relate to, they can protect him. Together, they become a group. And we also know that the town was on the highway, on the main road, the Via Maris. We know that because they found milestones here, and we also read in the scripture that there was a centurion, a Roman officer, there were tax collectors, so it's on the highway. And we also know that it is very close to what was then the border. The border between Galilee and Judea, where Herod Antipas is the governor, to Philip's harsh portion of the land, is a few miles away. And therefore, by being close to the border, it's possible for Jesus to get on the boat and sail away from danger. Jesus chooses Capernaum as his hometown for the two to three years of his life that we call the Ministry of Galilee. Most homes of the town are built out of the local black basalt rocks. I don't like it, do you? It's the synagogue built out of white limestone. Let's go into the uh, ancient synagogue. So this is the late 4th century white synagogue built upon the remains of the synagogue of Jesus. You can see the older synagogue was... Yeah, so Jesus would have preached at the black one, what's underneath. This one's above it later on. Look how Roman this one is. It's beautiful, though. The white synagogue was built in the basilica design with two rows of columns dividing the space into two naves. The entrance is decorated with carved stone friezes with typical Jewish symbols such as flower wreaths, palm trees, and geometric designs. I would like to mention the ongoing dispute whether this was really built as a synagogue. Those who oppose argue that the building looks more like a Roman temple and that the orientation is reverse. As the building is facing north, instead of south towards Jerusalem. Those who argue that it is a synagogue show that there are seats on three sides and the symbols carved into the decorated stones are Jewish symbols. So the argument whether the old synagogue was a synagogue or not, uh, I think uh, this display here gives the answer. The Star of David. Here's an amphora with grapes growing out of it. Here, Hebrew inscription. And the menorah. Another star of David. Grapes. Pomegranates. Another star of David. This mobile ark on wheels could explain the orientation problem. Once the community is ready, they would roll the ark into the building and the congregation would turn and face the holy ark. So the ark has the Bible, in essence, the, the Torah. Possibly the ruins of an earlier synagogue, maybe even back to the first century, to the time of Jesus, because they walked over to 
the house. Look how close the synagogue is to the house. We're now we're in the synagogue. And there's the house right underneath. So that's the Jesuit church built on top of a house. Very close to the synagogue. The excavations revealed a house that looks very different than all the other homes of the town. The house was enlarged and expanded three times. And the final phase was a 5th century octagonal church with a mosaic floor. The explanation is that this must have been the house owned by St. Peter and his family, and one room was Jesus' room. The early Christians living in the town venerated this room, then later turned it into a house church, the Domus Ecclesia, and finally, during the Byzantine period, a church was built on the exact location of Jesus' room in St. Peter's house. And of course, the modern church was built on top about 20 years ago. It was built on stilts. So the ancient ruins of Peter's house could remain visible, and there's a glass floor inside the church where you can look down and see the ruins. It's really a pretty church. Before we walk down to the beach, let's take a closer look at the statue of Simon, son of Jonah, the Galilean fisherman from Kfarnachum. In his hands, he is holding the keys to the kingdom of heaven and the shepherd's staff. And at his feet is the fish named after him, St. Peter's fish. And the new name, Peter, the rock, give it to him by Jesus. It's a copy of the mosaic floor of the 5th century church built above St. Peter's house. And in the center of the mosaic is a depiction of a peacock. The peacock was used in the ancient Christian art as a symbol of the resurrection and the afterlife. We see the peacock symbol in many churches. And you actually see peacocks out there. The Franciscans keep them. Um, they wander around the shore. They're nice to see. Walking here on the shores of the Sea of Galilee is where I would like to remind us all that one can argue over the location of a building or a house, but the lake, Lake Kinneret, hasn't changed. The scenery, the smell, the sound of the water, they are all exactly the same as they were back in the first century. Next time you visit, make time to sit here for a few minutes and just let the lake guide you. That's probably good. That's exactly what I um, want us to do, uh, to be able to explore the sites, but actually sit by the sea a little bit and 
really contemplate what happened here. Enjoy the lake. Uh, you know, is it St. Peter's house? No, it's not St. Peter's house. I'm sorry. Um, and I hope your faith is not built on that. Um, it's just borderline nonsense. Uh, it's funny, the Greek Orthodox and the Franciscans have this like cold war going on at this site. The Catholics own half of it and the Greek Orthodox own the other half of it. And nobody can go to the other side. So the Greek Orthodox have this huge field that as an archaeologist, man, I want to get in there. I mean, that's prime real estate. You need to find out. They're like, no, no, um, nobody touches this. This is ours. They're not going to let any digs go on on their side. I'm like, oh, come on. So uh, you know, the, the Catholics do a brisk business and people visiting Peter's house and then the Greek Orthodox sort of turn their nose up at that. So it's a bunch of weird politics. I want to really get us beyond that. We know this site is important. We know of all places Jesus really centered himself here, taught here, performed miracles here like he did nowhere else. We want to understand that and really experience Jesus. We love him. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. And there's times to worship him, but I think there's also times to really study, try to to hear what he said. I mean, if we're too busy going, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, oh, Lord you, you, you don't learn. Um, so we're going to try to learn tonight from his, his interactions, what's going on, uh, why he is extraordinary, and what maybe lessons he has for us. So let's start out with Mark chapter 1. Begin with verse 21. So Jesus and his companions, his disciples, I would say, went to the town of Capernaum. And every Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue and taught the people. So whereas... We can't say for certain where Peter lived. We can say very certain where Jesus taught, right? Uh, it's, it's exactly where it is today. Now, we have to be clear, it's not the white one that's built. That's a later one. It would have been one underneath. And that's, of course, the challenge of archaeology. If you find something pretty, you don't want to tear it down for something underneath it that's not there anymore. Um, so you saw there's a big pit, like a, a square they dug in the floor. So you can stand and look over the rails and look down at the synagogue that Jesus preached at. But I don't know about you, that, that would be a great place. Uh, Jesus was there how often? Every Sunday. Uh, or, or I shouldn't say Sunday at all. It's every Sabbath, every Saturday. So this town is really acknowledging that he is... Not just a rabbi, but at least a rabbi. Um, but he's someone, as we'll see in a few minutes, that's teaching things they've not heard before or ways they've not heard it before. So every Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue and taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching. For he taught as one who had real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. Um, it's unfortunate the way this gets translated into English, and I can't tell you how many bad sermons I've heard on this. We take real authority, and that's what Jesus was teaching with, and 
we just we run with it in English. That means he used a deep voice, or he didn't stutter, or he was sure about what he was saying. All this stuff—it's—it's it's not what they're talking about. Um, I mean, think about all the things we say about uh, football players. I mean, he's got a pair of hands on him. I mean, what what do we really mean about half of that stuff? Um, th- th- there's phrases, there's there's ways that they use to describe rabbis that we have to sort of appreciate what what they're saying. They're not saying, you know, he's acting like he wrote the Bible. That's my favorite interpretation. Um, there, there's a little more to it than that. So let me try from a first century perspective to really explain to you what they're hearing and what they're reacting to. Because I think if we get it here, we'll recognize it when he does it. So we've got two quotes. Uh, the first is um, the, the context photos or the, the context quotes. Uh, this is how a rabbi should typically uh, begin his teaching. So this is the one, yeah. So this is kind of the standard sage, so the oldest form of the rabbis would generally introduce their teachings this way. Rabbi Eliezer said, in the name of Yochanan ben Sakai, who taught in the name of Hillel the elder, uh, what he had heard from his teacher, Abtalon. So they're sort of giving you um, a citation, right? They, they quote um, where all this has come from. Now what rabbis of various schools will do is tell you I received this teaching from this rabbi and he got this from this rabbi and what they'll do very quickly is get to either Hillel or Shammai so these are the two schools of thought that dominate the rabbis who either come out of one or the other Uh, it's you know, pick whatever you want, Republican and Democrat. Uh, I went to Texas Tech or I went to A&M. I mean, would pick whatever school. It's kind of that. So you lay out your pedigree until you get to Hillel or Shammai. Jesus doesn't do that. He's not applying to other authorities. He will sort of shock them sometimes when he says, I say... Typically, a rabbi will just tell you what his rabbi taught him. Jesus is significant when he says, either the scriptures say this, or I say this. Now, this is not without precedent. There are certain rabbis that can get away with this. And these rabbis in Hebrew are called uh, rabbis with shimcha which is what they're translating here as authority in Greek. It's, it's not a good, probably, translation. So let me show you how the Talmud explains Shimka, uh, which is our next quote. Did Joshua preface every word he taught with the words, thus did Moses tell me? So you go back to it, Joshua running around. You know, did he name drop? Well, one day when I was playing golf with Moses, uh, he was holding the Ten Commandments. 
uh, he said to me, no, they didn't do that. It's, if Joshua is saying it to you, just take it on faith, okay? He's like Moses' dude, so it's, it's the way it is. No, Joshua sat and taught without ever mentioning the name of his teacher, but everyone knew that his teacher was the Torah of Moses. So too did Rabbi Yochanan, which is one of the other sages that we mentioned. He was a, a disciple of Rabbi Eliezer, sit and teach without mentioning his teacher's name. But everyone knew that he was teaching, or he, he knew that the teaching was Rabbi Yochanan's. So this is what they say is Shimcha, that if you are so important to the story, if you are such a fundamental character, um, Yochanan is one of the founders, in a sense, of the school of Hillel. Um, so I don't even know what it's, you know, saying you're a Dallas Cowboy fan and you studied under, what was the coach's name, Landry? What, yeah, yeah. So you, you got some real cred in the game. Um, they're noticing that about Jesus, that when he teaches these things, he's not using the long-winded preambles. He's, he's teaching like a Joshua. He's teaching like a biblical character that really was taught. This gets their attention. This is a new school of thought. This isn't Hillel. This isn't Shammai. There's some similarities, more Shammai than Hillel, but uh, Jesus is, is doing different. He's acting different. He's not doing these preambles. Does that make sense? Okay, we'll watch him, him do some of this. So verse 23 a man possessed by an evil spirit was in the synagogue and began shouting, Why are you bothering us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One sent from God. Okay, that's a bad day. That's a bad Saturday at church when the possessed man starts screaming. Um, God be praised, I've never had to deal with this. And I don't want to, if you're listening, uh, ever deal with a possessed person. Um, we, in our world, um, I don't think deal with this quite to the extent that it was running around in the first century world. We've talked about this before, but I'll refresh your memory. In the first century, was it a good idea to be possessed? I mean, today we would honestly say, no, why would you ever allow another spirit, an unclean spirit, to touch your soul. God designed us, in a sense, as spirits in bodies so that his spirit can interact with us. That's the way the outlet, you know, the plug is just to go in the outlet. But demons, unclean spirits, can hotwire it and try to force their way into our spirits, designed to hold the Holy Spirit, but be messed up. As crazy as it sounds, much of Greek spiritual experience was based on the idea of getting possessed. Uh, if you want to do a little more research in this, look at Acts 16. Uh, there is a slave girl who was possessed by a demon, and she is making lots of money for her owners. Her owners are delighted that she's possessed. Now, the Greeks actually called this uh, demons, demos, but they had a different take on it. 
they said that each person had the potential to attract a powerful spiritual force that would enable them to do more than regular life. So great figures like Alexander the Great were said to have a demos, that he has a spirit that helps, enables him. It, it sort of like a muse, but more dynamic. And these were actively sought in Greek society. We look at the oracles, like the oracles of Delphi. So this is how the Greeks told the future. So their idea was that you would take a priestess and you would put her over one of these fissures that went into the underworld, into Hades, and one of these demos, one of these spirits, would come out from the underworld and inhabit her. The demon then would have knowledge that we wouldn't. Uh, demons can see the future. They have a bigger vantage point. I think both faiths would agree to that than just a regular human. Jews and Christians are absolutely, I think for profound reasons, against this kind of stuff. The last thing that we want to do is be possessed. But please understand, Greek culture was not. Uh, I mean, in Romans and, and by extension. Uh, so it was a crazy, crazy time to live when people were actively not trying to collect rocks or, you know, records. Um, but hey, let's see if we can get possessed. Um, I mean, you literally can't make this stuff up. Poor Paul will go into the church of Corinth and have a horrible time because uh, they want to get slain in the spirit, right? And Paul's like, wait, wait a minute. What we're talking about with the Holy Spirit is not what you people have been doing, right? So just, just back up. Um, so is that as crazy as it sounds? Yeah. Um, so we're not shocked uh, in this town to find a person who is possessed. But what does Jesus go to go through to get rid of it? Uh, uh, 25, Jesus cut him short, be silent, come out of the man. At that, the evil spirit screamed and threw the man into convulsions, but then he left him. So it's interesting that the demon recognizes Jesus. What does it call him? Holy One, yeah. One of the great fears of what demons can do is they don't always lie to us. Uh, they can tell us the truth, um, but it's like a worm on a hook. As soon as you begin to trust them, uh, trust what they're saying, then they'll sink the hook in. Most of the demons that Jesus encounters when they do speak to him, and he s seems to stop them um, often. Um, he doesn't want them to reveal things. Uh, but they, they do say good things about Jesus, um, and they're very fearful of him. He obviously is creating the kingdom. God's presence is expanding here on earth, and that expansion is pushing, pushing them away. I mean, think of the good times they had um, with pagan cultures where they were actively being worshipped and sought after, and Jesus is putting an end to that. Um, I don't think people really search for demons anymore. I mean, maybe fortune tellers and some crazies do, but um, try to put an end to it. Is that okay? Does that make sense? All right. Let me jump over to Matthew real quick. Matthew's telling the same story, 
but he's going to pick up a little extra detail for us. So this is Matthew uh, chapter 8. Yeah. Um, Oh, I'm in Mark, so I can't find it. I left my Bible. I had to teach today at Midland Christian, and I left my Bible. And so this is my backup Bible, and I can't find a thing in it. I mean, it's, it's like once you get out of your comfort zone, it's good for me, though. So when Jesus arrived in Capernaum, so again, uh, this location, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him. Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and racked with pain. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. Then the officer said, Lord, uh, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. So we talked about Capernaum has a Roman garrison. And this Roman, he's, we say officer, he's a centurion, so he's pretty high ranked. He may actually be the commander of the garrison. So how does this go down? What are the Romans in Galilee? They're the friendly peacekeepers, aren't they? They're those nice guys in the blue hats that give chocolates to candy or to kids, right? No, no. Um, We did this when we did uh, the Matthew study, but I think the best way to perceive correctly, historically, Romans in the time of Jesus is to picture a Nazi in occupied Europe. These are not nice people. They're not here to do fun things. Uh, They regularly crucify people uh, to make public statements to the Jews. Uh, There's an open war going on. I mean, there's rebellion. It's, It's like Iraq in the worst insurgent days. It's horrible. And so a Roman comes up to Jesus. Now, what does that tell you about Jesus' reputation? It's gotten pretty far afield um, that a Gentile, an enemy of Israel, is asking Jesus for help. Let's jump over to Luke real quick, which also has a version of this story. And he gives us a little bit more detail, which I think is really helpful. Luke chapter 7 So again, everybody is stressing this location for us. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he went back to Capernaum. Now a high-valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish leaders to ask him to come and heal the slave. So they earnestly begged Jesus to come with him and help the man. If anyone deserves your help, it is he, they said. For he loves the Jews, and he even built the synagogue for us. Well, that's fascinating, isn't it? Um, What synagogue are we talking about? The black one, the one we saw. Um, What kind of Nazi builds a synagogue for Jews? That's quite a Nazi. how did he get away with it? Um, and it's not him going around and telling people, yeah, you know, when I, I help these poor little people, it's the Jews. They're saying, no, 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 Jesus, this guy, he's the, the real deal. He, he helped us. If you can help him, 
uh, please do. And that's this kind of stuff that I don't think you can make up, just the, the reality of life. No group of people, as bad as they are, is 100% evil. I mean, it, it, it's just not. There are always exceptions. And Jesus is sort of modeling that. I think it works in reverse too. No group of people are perfect. There's always a bad apple or two. And so you really have to experience real life. Um, please understand what a shock this had to, to be through Capernaum. This is a whole different kind of interaction between Roman and uh, Jew. Uh, usually it's antagonistic and involves bloodshed. But everyone is starting to know that Jesus is different. He's not just a rabbi. He teaches in a different way. And he is casting out demons. And um, I skipped over it, but he's actually healing a great many people as well. So the Roman is, is part of it. So let's jump back to Matthew and look at verse 7. So this is Matthew um, chapter 8, verse 7. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. He's not saying, Rabbi Eliezer taught me, um, based on Hillel's teaching, that if you, it's not that. Uh, he is not shy to say, uh, I will come and I will heal. Then the Roman officer, the centurion says, I'm not worthy uh, to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. I know because I am under the authority of my superior officer and have the authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go, and they go, and come, and they come. And if I say to my slave, do this or that, they do it. <laughs> Spoken like a true Roman. Um, when I say it should be done by God, it's done. So, interpretation here. Is this Roman? want his slave healed but he doesn't want Jesus at his house would this look bad that Jesus a Messiah figure is coming to his house or is it genuine I, I, I think it could be genuine is he really understanding the way that in a sense Jesus works in relation to disciples in relation to the spiritual world um, what do you think You think he understands? You know, that's, that's a really good point. Um, there's lots of things that go on a Roman house that would be sinful for a Jew to, to see. You know, <laughs> I, I came to heal the slave. Don't mind the pork laying on the table. You know, all that kind of uh, stuff. Um, so maybe, maybe there's a tenderness there. What I think is powerful is verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. That's an interesting day that you shocked Jesus. That you surprised Jesus. And what a nice kind of little turn of events. Did the people in his hometown, Nazareth, surprise him? Mm, no. You all were consistently terrible my entire life. Thanks for nothing, you worthless town. Um, so I, I, I love this, and this is what I, I mean about sometimes we've got to get past 
the worship, although Jesus is certainly worth worship and there's time to worship him, there's also time to study him and see him as God and see him as man and see him this moment where he's like, yeah, you know, I would never expect someone like you to understand what you do. But it's a beautiful thing when it happens. And this idea that his kingdom is bigger than the war that going on in his country is sort of being laid out. So Jesus turns this into a teaching moment. And he says, I tell you the truth. I haven't seen faith like this in all of the land of Israel. And I will tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. Okay. What did Jesus just say? Um, this Nazi here is a good guy. He's like the best, the best spiritual Jew guy I've ever... What? Jesus, stop. You're going to... You know, don't give him ideas. Um, Jesus is definitely speaking here, Basora, and I think it's it's an important thing for Christians to learn. Jesus's idea of gospel is actually known biblically as Basora, and it's this big idea that comes out of the Old Testament. The, the word Basora gets translated into gospel. Uh, by us and most of the time all we think about of gospel is that we get saved you know jesus died for my sin that's what the gospels are it's important for christians to grow up and learn basora it's this plan that the prophets unveil prophecies that god is going to call the jewish people that are scattered in exile back to the holy mountain of zion that he's going to gather together all of his children in the midst of gathering those Jews together, remember we talked about this in Ezekiel, he's also going to gather Gentiles that believe in him. And so the Gentiles are going to be included, those that choose to be, included in the restoration of humanity, restoration of coming back to God. So Jesus is channeling that idea. He's saying when this all comes to an end. The kingdom feast, um, when the Messiah comes, all of this, sitting at the table are going to be Gentiles. Now, he said the same kind of thing in Nazareth, and it upset them greatly. Maybe channeling some of that, he continues in verse 12, but many Israelites, those of whom the kingdom was prepared, will be cast into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I'm sure the Jews that were there said, oh, goody. Really glad to hear that. Now, let's put this into context. So Jesus invited this centurion to be a disciple. He said, give up your sword and follow me. You will spread my word to the world. Right? Jesus said to the disciple, hey, why don't you come hang out with me? He will not. There is a limit to this. Jesus' ministry is definitely to the Jews. And that's sort of the direction in rabbinic mode that he's going. He's teaching them, uh, you could learn a lot from this pagan, this Nazi, this Roman. 
why is it that he has such faith that I can do what I say I can do, but you all seem to doubt it? And say with me here, this gets to the, the key issue of authority that Jesus was teaching by. They were used to schools of thought saying, Hillel says such and such. Shammai says such and such. That was the source of authority. Jesus is changing that and saying, the authority that I'm going to mention is me. The authority that I'm going to mention is scripture. What really matters now is not how other rabbis have interpreted it, but the Basora. This plan that God has had since the beginning to bring all people back to him. That's what matters. It will include Gentiles. Thank God, because that's how we got in this. Um, but it's definitely intended for the Jews to be gathered back home. So let me stop. I'm connecting some dots there. Does that make sense? What do you think? Question. That, that, that is a brilliant, brilliant connection. Um, it, it's not connected to the word diaspora at all. It's, it's a Greek word that means the, scat, the scattering. But you're exactly right. Basora is the opposite of that. It's, it's bringing in. Um, it's just B-E-S-O-R-A-H. I'll, I'll bring it next time. Basora. And it um, started out as good news, but became the good news. And so we, we translate that, we did, the, the early gospel writers, into gospel, which means the, the announcement of a Roman emperor. Um, but I, I think that goes too far. It's, it's the end of the world. It's the coming of the Messiah. It's the day you die. It's everything being made right in the world. Uh, it's the kingdom come, literally. And so that's what Jesus, I think, is really presenting. So, Sure. Wait, say that again. I couldn't hear you. I don't understand the... Um, well, okay, you mentioned Lydia, the slave who uh, had a demon. Right. In Acts, and then uh, the other, I mean, the man. Okay. Both of them recognized, or at least they said, you were the only one of God. Yes. And Jesus tells them to shut up and tell them and then he, he then gets rid of the demon out of him. Why does he silence them? Because they recognize his kingship, I guess. Right. Um, so please, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great question. Uh, please understand that most of regular Greek worship was going to people like this and getting oracles or messages from the demons. So the demons, in a sense, were directing the spiritual life of a great many people. Jesus doesn't want any of that. Even if they're telling the truth about him, he doesn't want a demon proclaiming his name. What he wants is disciples, uh, people from Capernaum, people that got healed, they will um, proclaim his word. Um, 
He does. Right. Right. Um, he zip, zip, shut up. Um, he, he, he doesn't, uh, he, he definitely always silences the demons and he'll silence people until the end. Um, sort of like David was talking about, Jesus is aware that he could get killed. Um, there, there's just a lot of people gunning for him. Um, John the Baptist is in the process of being killed. His brothers and John know that Jesus is at risk if he goes to Jerusalem. And Jesus will say, you know, my time has come or my time has not come. So he, he's watching the radar, so to speak, of uh, when the Romans or uh, Roman sympathizers will kill him. That demon stuff scares me, though. Well, not scares me. It's just I, I don't like it. Um, if, if I can avoid it at all costs. I did a circum or a... Um, uh, 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 Exorcism once, once, once. Um, we had a pastor, Hispanic pastor from northern Mexico. And if you know anything about northern Mexico, they have a lot of demons and a lot of all that stuff. So he called me on one Saturday night and said, hey, I'm doing an exorcism. Uh, I need a second pastor to help with this. Do you want to? And I was young and dumb. I thought, sure, why not? Yeah, it'd be a great story. It was not a good story. <laughs> it was horrible. Um, nothing happened like the movies. This poor woman had been raped. Um, and she needed a lot of counseling, I think, more than she needed a demon uh, cast out of her. Um, so that's my limited experience. But I, I didn't like any of it. Um, you know, the demon is supposed to name itself. And very cynical Kurt was like, all right, I know Hebrew, I know Aramaic, I know Greek. If the demon's name is like Pepe, <laughs> you know, the, the gig's up, right? It's, uh, but the demon never named itself, so... Anyway, I, I think that stuff's out there. I just am willfully not prepared to face it. So um, I'll just rely on the Holy Spirit. Help, help. But we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that it was, it was very present in Jesus' world. And again, history confirms it, that the Greeks in particular are looking for um, possession. So I love you guys. I love studying with you guys. Other questions? All right, I think we'll end it there. We've got a little bit more to do in Capernaum, but not much more. Through all of this, people are amazed. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the demons um, uh, cast out. How many in Capernaum accept Jesus? Does the whole town become a town dedicated to Jesus? No, very few. And ultimately, the day he's crucified, none of them are there. All that he did for them, uh, he'll do the feeding of the 5,000s just down the, the shore, casting out these demons, teaching in a way they've never heard before. Uh, they are exactly like he said when he talked to the Roman. The Roman believed that I could do what I say. Um, you say that you believe in me. You ask me for help. But when it really comes push to shove, you don't believe. And so uh, Capernaum is one of the towns that Jesus curses. And it said, you know, I should have gone to Sodom. It would have been a better day. They would have believed me. Now, rabbis are prone to a little hyperbole. So I think there's a little bit there. I don't think Jesus ever really would have gone to uh, Sodom. But uh, he would have thought he had had a better day. So I think that's serious warnings for all of us that we can 
get excited about Jesus. Maybe we go see Peter's house and we can worship him and we can do all the things. But if we don't really listen to him, we don't let him teach us. I mean, I I promise you, you're probably going to run across a good Roman once in your life. Um, Just the worst kind of person comes from what you think is evil, evil, evil. But there's probably one good one. Will you honor the words of Jesus and do what you need to that day? I mean, eventually Rome is transformed. Now, Jesus is not naive. He's not a kid. He's not saying, oh, all Romans are good. We just misunderstood the Romans. If we all invited the Romans into our house, they would kill us and murder us in our house. I mean, he, he, he's, he's realistic. He sees faith. He acknowledges it. If he can help a person, he does help. But at the end of the day, he's worried about those that call themselves by his name, those that answer the call to Basora to go to the mountain to answer the gospel. Will we really let him teach us? That he is our authority. Not political camps, not schools, not philosophies, um, not even you know, political. Is Jesus the authority that we're going to follow? Uh, that his kingdom is more important than anything else. Stuff I live for, but I don't know if I always accomplish it. So, Anything else? Parting comments? The clock has gone away in the back, so that must be a sign to stop. So <laughs> let's pray, and we'll head out. Father God, we know tonight we are not so blessed to have been in that synagogue the day you taught, or the day you cast a demon down. But we know we are blessed to sit here tonight and have your word open before us, to not have to worry about Romans kicking down our doors and collecting our names and sending us off to camps. We know that we've been blessed as a nation with freedom and the ability to live life as we see fit, to live life as you have set forth. Father God, let us never take that for granted. We know we are easily distracted, Father, that we can worship the package instead of the presence inside. So we do say to you again, teach us, O Lord. We are ready to be your disciples. We are ready for the life that you have for us to live. Really be what we do with you. Help us never to shy away from sharing your story with those around us whether they be Romans or people we've always known. Help us to remember this lesson and never let it be said of us that miracles, blessings were done in our midst and we never changed. Oh, forbid that, O Lord. May we truly be yours. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you.